0: If I was to ask you, do you like receiving good news? I'm sure you'd all say yes. Uh, If I was to ask you if you like receiving bad news, you'd probably all say no. That's only natural, isn't it? But for all that we might not like it, uh, we'd probably be foolish to receive, uh, uh, to ignore bad news when we receive it. Um, You might, I don't know, go to the doctors and you receive bad news that you've got some disease. Well, it would be foolish to ignore that. Um, Better to act upon it and hopefully have it treated. So, uh, best not to ignore bad news. Now, we've looked at the first five of the series of eight visions that Zechariah saw in one night... And there's no denying that they've been strange, uh, they've been puzzling, but we've managed to go some way towards unravelling them uh, and making some sense of them. Uh, We've seen something of what an encouragement they would have been to Zechariah and the people of his day. Uh, And we've also been able to see much that should be of encouragement to us uh, in our day. So it's been... Mainly good news up until this point. The the immediate encouragement uh, was that the Lord was returning to Jerusalem. Uh, The temple would be rebuilt. uh, And Joshua and Zerubbabel would be equipped and enabled to play their part in in doing that. And then beyond that immediate encouragement uh, lay the spiritual Jerusalem. And the Lord's spiritual temple that would be built by the coming Messiah, through whom sin would be removed in one day. So, great encouragement in all of that. But the final three visions, uh, they're much more solemn, much more sobering. But they speak to us of God's hatred of sin, Uh, and they show us that this hatred isn't simply how he feels about it but it's a a, a righteous opposition to sin and he'll actually do something about it he'll curse sin and he'll deal with sinners so now we've got the bad news Uh, we might not like it but we must not ignore it the general point seems to be that Although Zechariah and Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people were encouraged and even excited that the Lord was returning to them, they needed to realise that having the Lord return would have consequences. Things would have to change. They'd have to change their ways. If the Lord draws near, you can't carry on as you were. He's a holy God. So when he comes, sin must go. If he's in the midst, there can be no room for sin. Well, with that in mind, let's look at this sixth vision, um, which is every bit as strange as as any of the previous ones that we've looked at. Uh, We see it there in the the first four verses of of chapter 5. And really, I suppose, that the passage can be divided into two parts, but verses 1 and 2 tell us what Zechariah saw, and then verses 3 and 4 tell us what Zechariah was told. So let's look at what Zechariah saw first of all, Read in verses 1 and 2, again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll, and he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. So, in verse 1, we we see that Zechariah lifted his eyes. He saw this flying scroll. And the angel asked him what he saw. And Zechariah replied by saying, I see a flying scroll. That's straightforward, that's simple. I almost almost pitched. Do you remember that program, Catchphrase? and there were those sort of strange sort of pictures, and, and he used to say say what you see well, this is uh, Zechariah sort of saying exactly what he saw I see a flying scroll it always makes me laugh though, because the, the King James version speaks of a flying roll and, and <laughs> it makes me smile, because it conjures up wonderful images, doesn't it you know, is that a bread roll, a sausage roll, Swiss roll, toilet roll, um Clearly, scroll is the correct translation. Uh, I mean, nowadays, the, the equivalent of a, a scroll would be a book or even the electronic document. But in those days, of course, writing was done on a scroll, which was a, a long piece of parchment that could be rolled up uh, for storage purposes. And then it could be unrolled from one end and rolled up from the other so that you could see the section that you wanted to read. In a manageable way without having masses of, of paper, uh, to, to get tangled up in, you know, like, like the dog in the Andrex adverts. So, there was nothing unusual about a scroll as such. That, that would have been commonplace. But this particular scroll, uh, was far from ordinary. There was sorry, at least three things that were very strange about it. Uh, firstly, we're told it was flying. So don't think football fans throwing toilet rolls here. Hope you didn't do that on Wednesday, Richard. Not very excited at one point, but I, I did restrain that. Good, good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll have to keep quiet, yeah. <laughs> so we're not, not told it had wings, so it wasn't sort of flapping wings and flying along. The, the idea is probably that that it was unrolled uh, and sort of waving in the air like like, like a banner. Now that's strange enough uh, but it gets even stranger Uh, it it was unusual because of its size this was a giant flying scroll You see that in verse 2 Zechariah said its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits that's approximately 30 feet long by 15 feet wide so it it was massive um, especially in terms of its width Um, I I guess uh, a scroll, a normal scroll, could conceivably be 30 feet long, but a scroll that was 15 feet wide, well, that would have been unheard of. You know, can you imagine trying to unroll a scroll that was more like a big roll of carpet? That's the sort of width we're, we're talking about. Thirdly, it was unusual in that it had writing on both sides. In normal scrolls, we just have writing on, on, on one side. Uh, This wasn't something that Zechariah mentioned but from what the angel of the Lord went on to say it would seem uh, to be that that's what Zechariah saw. In verse 3 there we read Then he said to me This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So unlike most scrolls this scroll had writing on both sides. Now that this scroll was uh, unfurled and big and had writing on both sides means that its message would have been clear for all to see. There was nothing hidden about it, nothing secret about it. It was on full, open display. I don't know, have you ever seen a, a plane pulling one of those... Uh, but those streamers in the air—that's that's sort of how I imagine this flying scroll as being. Except it didn't need a plane, but it was a, like a, a long streamer uh, flying through the air. I, I don't know if you remember some years ago when uh, some Man United fans uh, that hired a plane to pull uh, a banner over Old Trafford, proclaiming "Wrong One, Moyes Out," and they were protesting. Because they were dissatisfied with with him as a manager. And such streamers are are often uh, for protest, to protest about something. Uh, Otherwise, they they can sometimes be to advertise something, or or maybe even to celebrate something. But the purpose of this flying banner that Zechariah saw was a far cry for many of those things. It was very different. Uh, and we'll find out more about this this strange flying scroll that Zechariah saw as we go on to think about what Zechariah was told about it in verses 3 to 4 we read, then he said to me this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side I will send it out declares the Lord and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name and it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. So that tells us several things that, that Zechariah was told about this vision of the flying scroll. Firstly the angel explained that the scroll was the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. It was going out as a curse over all the land, uh, and as we saw previously, it would be seen by all, so there'd be no no hiding from it, no escaping from it. Secondly, although the curse was going out over the whole land, we find that it wasn't a curse on the land. We see that because the angel said, everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. It was those who stole, it was those who swore falsely, who would be affected by this curse or subject to the curse. Thirdly, Zechariah was told that it wasn't a curse that merely goes out over the face of the whole land, Because we read in verse four there, "I will send it out," declares the Lord of hosts. So this curse would be sent by the Lord. It wasn't a a random thing that the Lord happened to know was going to happen. No, the, the exercising of this curse would be something that God himself would do. It would be His deliberate action. Fourthly, we see that the result of this curse would be uh, absolute and final, because you read there in verse 4, the Lord said, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. There'd be no coming back from this. It it was final. So that's a quick overview uh, of what Zechariah saw, and what he was told uh, uh, about, uh, about what he saw. And in many ways, it's quite a a, a chilling vision. Uh, But but we now need to look a bit more closely at it and try and work out what Zechariah was to understand uh, by it, what he was to understand from it. And we'll do that by looking at the immediate context and trying to answer some of the fairly obvious questions that arise. What was the curse? Where was the curse? What was the curse going to do? and when was the curse going to come so what was the curse well i think there's every reason to think that the flying scroll depicted the law of moses particularly as represented by the 10 commandments well, what evidence is there to lead to that conclusion well, well firstly at, at this stage in israel's history the law would have been written on a scroll but because the ark of the covenant had almost certainly been lost when the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem uh, in 587 BC. So it's quite reasonable for the law to be represented by a scroll. And even nowadays, um, all Jewish synagogues house uh, what they call the Torah scrolls, uh, scrolls on which the law is written. Secondly, the strange dimensions uh, of this scroll are are probably quite significant. In 1 Kings 6 we read about the building of of Solomon's temple and verse 3 of of that chapter says the vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long equal to the width of the house and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. Those dimensions sound Familiar? The the dimensions of the vestibule of the porch of the temple were exactly the same as those of this scroll. Or perhaps more accurately, the dimensions of the scroll were exactly the same uh, as that of of the vestibule or the temple of uh, the the vestibule or porch of of the temple. Now that, that porch was looked upon as the place of judgment that was where the public reading of the law took place. So the idea behind the vision of the flying scroll would be that it looked forward to to a time to come when the law would no longer be safely locked up uh, as a scroll in the entrance to the temple uh, and just taken out and read from time to time, but it would, if you like, be, be set loose and it would fly across the land in judgments. Thirdly, as we know that the Ten Commandments had been given on two tablets, uh, one contained the commands that particularly addressed how we are to behave towards God, and the others addressed how we are to behave towards men, towards one another. Now, just as the law had been divided between those two tables so what was written on the scroll was divided between its two sides now we're not told exactly what was written on on each side uh, of the scroll but it's clear uh, from verse 3 that what was written on one side addressed everyone who steals and what was written on the other side addressed everyone who swears falsely Now, now some commentators suggest that that stealing and deceit were probably the the besetting sins of the day. But others suggest, and I I think this is more likely the the right understanding, that they suggest that one of these uh, sins is addressed by a commandment from one table of the law, and the other is addressed by a commandment from the other table of the law. And that those commandments are then each representative of the whole of each table of the law. And you might say, well, yes, but stealing is addressed by the Eighth Commandment, which says you shall not steal. And swearing falsely is addressed by the Ninth Commandment, which says you shall not bear false witness. Uh, And they're both from the second table. But then you see, if you look at verse 4, you'll see the Lord speaks of him who swears falsely, by my name. And that is addressed by the third commandment, which says, You shall not take the Lord of the name, your God, in vain. And that, of course, is from the first table of, of the law. So it's likely that the scroll, with its writing on both sides, represented the law as a whole. Fourthly, of course, the New Testament speaks very clearly in terms of the law being a curse. Uh, Galatians 3 verse 10, for instance, states that cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. You see, when there's anything less than full obedience to the law, well, then the law is a curse. It's not good enough to keep... Most of the law. It's all or nothing. Uh, Remember James in in chapter 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So to fail in, in just one point of the law is to be guilty of breaking the whole law and therefore to be under its curse. So in this vision the curse that, it, that the flying scroll represented seemed to have been the curse of the law. It's as though the Lord was saying to Judah, when I return to you, be warned that you will be subject to my law. Uh, and that law is a curse to all who break it. That The scroll of the law, well, it, it won't remain rolled up uh, and stored away, no, it's going to fly throughout the whole land. It will be opened up and it will be applied. And this is quite a scary prospect, isn't it? But that—that's that's what is being presented. So where was the curse? Where, where would the curse be directed? Where would it be applied? Where would it come to bear? If you look at the passage, um, you'll see uh, it says, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. Um, that's the, in the S V and the NIV says the same. It speaks of the whole land. But the New King James Version says this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Well, there's, there's quite a difference there, isn't there, between the whole land and the whole earth. So, which of those options is is correct, which is right? Is it the whole earth, or is it the whole land? Well, the Hebrew word itself doesn't really help us because it, it can mean earth, it can mean land or or, or country, uh, and it's frequently translated in in each of those senses. So we we need to uh, tr- try to work it, work out the right meaning f- from the context in. In that case, see if the context gives us any clues that will help us to find the intended meaning. And we find the same word is used several times in the immediate context. In chapter 4, verse 14, the same word appears and there it's translated as the whole earth. Uh, and There it's being used to speak of God as being the Lord of the whole earth. So, so the whole earth would, would seem to be an appropriate translation in that instance. Uh, in the seventh vision, the, the one that comes next, uh, the same Hebrew word is used in, in verse 6. Uh, and once again, as in, in verse 3 in our passage, the New King James Version again has earth, but the ESV and the NIV both have land. Uh, in, in this seventh vision, there's a basket that's said to be their iniquity in all of the land or earth, depending which you opt for. Now that basket was taken away, uh, and verse 11 tells us where it was taken to. And again, we have the same Hebrew word being used, and this time the ESV says the basket was taken to the land of Shinar. Uh, The New King James Version says the same. The NIV, NIV says it was taken to the country of Babylonia. Now, of course, Shinar is just the, an, an older name for for Babylon. Uh, clearly, land or country it is the appropriate translation of the Hebrew Hebrew word. Now, the sixth and seventh visions are quite closely related together. So, so taking the two visions together, it seems most likely that the curse of the flying scroll in the sixth vision, flew throughout the land of Judah and led to the basket of iniquity uh, being taken to the land, uh, to, to the land of, of Shinar or, or Babylonia. That, that seems consistent with, with the fact that the law of Moses had been given to the nation of Israel and applied to the nation of Israel. So the Ten Commandments really summarised Israel's covenant obligations to the Lord. So the Lord was saying, if I come back to my people Israel, my law will come to bear. They will be under my law, they must obey my law, and there will be inevitable consequences for any who disobey. Well, what are those consequences? Well, we see the answer to that question Uh, What was the curse going to do? Uh, Verse 3 tells us that every thief will be cleaned out according to the curse and that everyone who swears falsely would be cleared out according to the curse. Now, as we've said, um, stealing and swearing falsely by the Lord's name, uh, they're really representative of the whole law. So its effect was that all lawbreakers would be cleaned out. Well, what then are we to understand by being cleaned out? Well, the NIV uses the word "banished," and the New King James uh, says "expelled." But I don't think any of those words quite capture the real meaning of the Hebrew here. That they give the impression that the focus is on the lawbreakers. It's what's going to happen to the lawbreakers. But the Hebrew word really means. To cleanse by purging. So the real emphasis doesn't fall on those who would be banished or expelled. The emphasis is is on that from which they would be banished or expelled. The the object of the exercise was, was cleansing, purifying, refining by expelling that which was sinful. Well, what was to be cleansed? answer is Judah, the people of God. You see what the Lord was saying, it amounted to if I am to live among you, you must be holy as I am holy so there will have to be a purging or all lawbreakers will have to be expelled and there'd be a a dreadful finality about it. Remember we saw in in verse 4 that the Lord said and it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. So this wasn't a a remedial sentence for those who were expelled it wasn't banishment uh, until the sinner had learned his lesson it wasn't expulsion uh, until the sinner had mended his ways But this was final that there was, there'd be no coming back so the encouragement that the Lord would return to them was counterbalanced by this reality check it would mean there'd have to be a thorough Purging. When was the curse going to come? Well, tantalizingly, the, the vision doesn't tell us when it would take place. All we can say is that from verse 4, it would be when the Lord Almighty sent it out. And of course, when he did do that, all of the people would be found to be lawbreakers. When we looked at uh, Galatians three earlier, and continuing in, in, in chapter three, verse eleven, we're told, "Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You know, all who were under the law would be condemned by the law. Consequently, when the Lord sent the fly- sends the, the flying scroll over the land, all of the nation of Israel would have to be purged out." They'd have to be banished from the theocratic nations, so they'd no longer be a theocratic nation. And of course, that is exactly what came to pass when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Now, what must we recognise from all of this? It it all sounds quite remote from us somehow, doesn't it? I think what we need to recognise from this Is that this, um, if this was the only vision that Zechariah had been shown, it would be deeply disturbing, wouldn't it? The vision on its own paints a a desperate picture that leaves us all condemned, leaves us in, in dire circumstances. It tells us that God is holy that he cannot and will not tolerate sin. It tells us that he will separate uh, all those who are unrighteous and expel them. It tells us that they'll be banished uh, and there'll be no coming back. His judgment is final. And with him there'll be no miscarriages of judgments. There'll be no appeals, there'll be no... Retrials, there'll be no mitigating circumstances. The fact is we are all sinners, as Paul says in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, not, no, not one. So the vision of the flying scroll on its own is desperately bad news. But the vision wasn't on its own. It is one of a series of, of eight visions. And you remember that, that a previous vision had spoken of the coming of the branch who would t- take away sin in a, single w- in a single day and this vision of the flying scroll well, it-, it shows us why the coming of the Messiah was necessary and why his taking away sin is our only hope God is still holy he still cannot and will not tolerate sin and he'll still separate the righteous from the unrighteous but we now live in days after the Lord Jesus Christ has come and laid down his life to take away sin. He's born the curse for all of those who come to faith in him. Paul says in Galatians 3, 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law <coughs> by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. How did he become a curse for us? Well, it was by taking our sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read, For our sake, that is, for the sake of believers in Christ, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. The, the, the sinless one bore our sin and so became a curse for us. He was banished from the presence of God on our behalf. You remember his, his dreadful cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was suffering banishment from God. The, the, the banishment that, that we deserve because he was bearing the curse that, that we deserve. Why did he subject himself to that? Well, as Paul went on to explain, it was so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, through faith in him, we receive Christ's righteousness as our own, so we're no longer under the curse, we no longer deserve banishment, but acceptance in Christ. God is still holy, he cannot and will not tolerate sin, but now you no longer have to bear the consequences of sin if Jesus has be, uh, has borne the curse for you. God will still separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Matthew 25, um, Jesus speaks of separating the sheep from the goats, doesn't he? Uh, those who are righteous through fi- faith in him, he describes as being blessed by my Father uh, and will receive their inheritance... <laughs> which he describes as the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They'll be in his presence for eternity. On the other hand, the unrighteous are described as cursed and will be told to depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the curse of the law. It's eternal banishment from the presence of God. It's eternal punishment and there will be no way back. What a a stark contrast there is there. But thank God that he so loved the world that he sent his son so that whoever believes in him need not perish. We're delivered from that curse and we have that uh, assurance in Christ. Amen.